Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. This is transmission number 18. So I started my day off today with uh, a nice nice run in this morning. I made it myself a goal that I was going to run every morning before I do anything. I wake up relatively early every day, probably around 6, 6.30. So my goal was between the first 45 minutes of waking up between... 6.30 and 6.45, I was going to go for a run. I know that I feel better and my day is always goes smoother when I work out in the morning. However, over the last month, maybe, I've been kind of pushing it off. I'll, I'll wake up, but then I kind of just fiddle around a little bit. I like waking up that early because everybody else is asleep and I get that time to myself. Uh, so I decided, well, since I'm up, I'm going to put that time to use. I'm going to run, I'm going to work out, work on the podcast and all that. However, I've been that 45 minutes that I gave myself uh, to sip my coffee and all that actually turns into a couple hours. And then I usually, I'll still run, but I'll run later on in the day. Uh, but last night I said, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to go and run. And I did that. Um, I'm increasing my speed and I'm getting better each time, but today was a little bit different. The last time I ran, I was running at like a, a nine minute mile pace for a good portion of the run. And then I would slow down maybe halfway in, bring it down to like a 10 and then end off like around at 11 uh, minute pace. Uh, but today I started off at like around a nine minute mile pace and then about the half mile in I had to slow down a little bit went down to like a 10 minute pace and then finished off at at 11 but I was at the 11 for a greater amount of time and uh, I started speeding up towards the end Uh, I wasn't expecting to stop then I wanted to keep going I did it a little bit over two miles I wanted to go for three And uh, so when I was getting towards the end of that two mile mark, I started speeding up and then I felt like I was going to throw up. So I slowed down and I walked it out the rest, you know, so I know I understand that it's not always the same. You're not always going to feel the same every time, you know, and it's a up and down thing, you know, but um, all right. So now we're going to let's get into it. Let's flip the script. We're going to continue with Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and uh, we're starting off with chapter eight and nine today. All right, so chapter eight is variation of tactics. It says, Sun Tzu said, in war, the general receives his commands from the sovereign, meaning the king, the leader, collects his army and concentrates his forces. When in a difficult country, do not encamp. In country where high roads intersect, join hands with your allies. Do not linger in dangerously isolated positions. There are roads which must not be followed. Armies which must not be attacked. All right, so he's laying out saying that there's roads that you shouldn't go on. Armies you shouldn't attack and towns that you shouldn't take over. Positions which must not be contested. Commands of the sovereign which must not be obeyed. That's interesting, right? Uh, We saw that on the first transmission I did on Sun Tzu, 
when King Wu came to him and said, I want to see how you can manage troops. Do you think that your plan, uh, your 13 chapters, will that translate into commanding women as well? And he had his concubines, 180 of them broken up into companies. And uh, to make a long story short, he was going to behead the two of his favorite that were put in leadership positions. And then the king said, uh, I saw enough. You know, I understand you could you could lead troops. Uh, don't behead these two. And Sun Tzu said, uh, as the general of your forces, I cannot follow that. I have to install discipline. And he ended up having them beheaded. So that's an example where a command from the sovereign that the general didn't follow, right? That's testy. That's uh that's that's risky, right? It says the general who thoroughly understands the advantages that accompany variation of tactics knows how to handle his troops. The general who does not understand these may well be acquainted with the configuration of the country, yet he will not be able to turn his knowledge to practical account. So the student of war who is universed in the art of war of varying his plans may, though, be acquainted with the five advantages with fail to make the best use of them. Hence, hence, the wise leader's plans, considerations of advantage and of disadvantage will be blended together. If your expectation of advantage be tampered in this way, we may succeed in accomplishing the essential part of our schemes. If, on the other hand, in the midst of difficulties, we are always ready to siege an advantage, we may execrate ourselves from misfortune. Reduce the hostile chiefs by inflicting damage on them and make trouble for them and keep them constantly engaged. Hold out suspicious allurements and make them rush to any given point. The art of war teaches us to rely not on the likelihood of the enemy's not coming, but on our own readiness to receive him, not on the chance of his not attacking, but rather on the fact that we have made our position unassailable. There are five dangerous faults which may affect a general. Recklessness, which leads to destruction. Cowardice, which leads to capture. A hasty temper which can be evoked by insults. Over solitude for his men, which exposes him to worry and trouble. The case will surely be focused among these five dangerous faults. Let them be subject to meditation. Hmm. All right, so Sun Tzu lays out five errors that a general can make that are going to make the general's conquest pretty rough, right? So there's five faults that affect the general. They said were cowardice leads to capture, recklessness, which leads to destruction. So you don't want to be too reckless. You want to be too over-aggressive, right? But you also don't want to be a coward and too reserved in your actions, right? So in our everyday lives, when we're thinking about this, we don't want to act 
impulsively. We don't want to make reckless decisions and just go about things on the whim, right? We want to have some type of order, some type of plan that are calculated, strategic. But you also don't want to be too reserved. You don't want to not do things because of your, you're afraid of the consequences, right? So you have to walk that fine line of knowing when to push an issue and when not to, right? Uh, we see that a lot. A lot of leaders are, uh, we probably dealt with bosses that are never want to push an issue up the chain of command. Uh, they're afraid of what their higher ups are going to say, what kind of ta- retaliation might be brought upon them. Um, you know, people on the lower level sometimes feel like their leaders are not working in their favor and they're working for themselves, which is often the case, right? So if you're in a leadership position, then you need to think about what kind of leader are you? Do you think about your troops? Do you think about your subordinates and how to overall maximize the efficiency of your organization? A hasty temper, which can be provoked by insults. So if you are a hothead and somebody makes a comment to you and you get all upset and you start doing uh, recklessness, right? That's how your enemy is going to attack you. Your enemy is going to find those weaknesses and is going to continue to push those buttons to make you error. And then over solicitude for his men, which exposes him to worry and trouble. So if you worry about your troops too much, right? You have to worry about your troops, but not worry about them too much where you're constantly worrying about them. And then you don't want to make decisions um, to accomplish the goal, right? So it's mission accomplishment over troop welfare, right? Mission accomplishment over troop welfare, right? That's what they always said in the Marines, right? Um, It's good to worry about your men, but not too much to where the mission becomes compromised, right? All right. So let's continue. Let's go to chapter nine. The army on the march. Sun Tzu said, We come now to a question of encamping the army and observing signs of the enemy. Pass quickly over mountains and keep in the neighborhood of valleys. Camp in high places. Take the high ground. Jocko always says, take the high ground before the high ground takes you, right? Take the camp in high places facing the sun. After crossing the river, you should get far off away from it. When invading forces across the river, it is onward march. Do not advance to meet it in midstream. It will be best to let half the army get across and then deliver your attack. Cover and move, right? It will be best to let half the army get across and then deliver your attack. So let your one half the army move across while the other one's providing cover. If you are anxious to fight, you should not go to meet the invader near the river which he has crossed. Moor your craft higher up than the enemy facing the sun. Do not move upstream to meet the enemy. So much for river warfare. In crossing salt marshes, your sole concern should be to get over them quickly without any delay. If forced to fight in a salt marsh, you should have water and grass near you and let your back to the clamp of trees. So much for operations in salt marshes. In dry, level country, take up an easily accessible position 
with rising ground on your right and near your rear, so that the danger may be in front and safety lie behind. So much for encamping in flat country. These are the four useful branches of military knowledge, which enabled the Yellow Emperor to vanquish for several sovereigns. All armies prefer high ground to low and sunny places to dark. If you are careful of your men and camp on hard ground, your army will be free from disease of every kind. And this will spell victory. When you come to a hill or a bank, occupy the sunny side with the slope of your rear right. Thus, you will once act for the benefit of your soldiers and utilize the natural advantages of the ground. When, in consequence of heavy rains upcountry, a river which you should ford is swallowed and freckled with foam, you must wait until it subsides. Country in which there are prestigious cliffs and torrents running between deep natural hollows, confined places, tangled thickets, quagmires should be left with all possible speed and not approached. While we keep away from such places, we should get the enemy to approach them. While we face them, we should let the enemy have them on the, his rear. If in the neighborhood of your camp, there should be any hilly country, pond surrounded by aquatic grass, hollowed basins filled with needs or woods and thick underground, they must be carefully rooted out and searched for these are places where men in ambush or insidious spies are likely to be lurking. When the enemy is close at hand and remains quiet, he is relying on the natural strength of his position. He is anxious for the other side to advance. If his place of encampment is easy of access, he is tendering a bait. Movement amongst the trees of a forest shows that the enemy is advancing. The appearance of a number of screens in the midst of thick grass means that the enemy wants to make us suspicious. The rising of birds near their flight is a sign of an ambuscade. Startled beasts indicate a sudden attack is coming. You ever hear that myth or superstition that when you see a bunch of birds flying all crazy, that that means that something bad's going to happen? I wonder if that's where that came from, saying if the birds or the wildlife are acting a little bit crazy, that means that there's an attack coming. Hmm. When there is dust rising in a high column is a sign of chariots advancing. Then the dust is low, but spread over a wide area. It betokens the approach of an infantry. When it's branches out in difficult directions, it shows that parties have been sent to collect firewood. A few clouds of dust moving to and fro signify that the army is encamping. The humble words of increased preparations are signs that the enemy is about to advance. Violent language and driving forward as if to the attack are signs that he will retreat. When the light chariots come out first and take up a position on the wings, it is a sign that the enemy is forming for battle. Peace proposals unaccompanied by a sworn covenant indicate a plot. When there is much running about and the soldiers fall into rank, it means that the critical moment has come. When some are seen advancing and some retreating, it is a lure. When the soldiers stand 
leaning on their spears. They are faint from want of food. If those who are sent to draw water begin by drinking themselves, the army is suffering from thirst. If the enemy sees an advantage to be gained and makes no effort to secure it, the soldiers are exhausted. If birds gather on any spot, it is unoccupied. If there is a disturbance in the camp, the general's authority is weak. If the banners and flags are shifted about, sedition is afoot. If the officers are angry, it means that the men are weary. When the army feeds its horses with grain and kills cattle for food, and when the men do not hang their cooking pots over campfires, showing that they will not return to their tents, you may know that they are determined to fight to the death. The sight of men whispering together in small knots or speaking of subdued tones point to dissatisfaction amongst the rank and file. Too frequent rewards signify that the enemy is at the end of his resources. Too many punishments betray the condition of dire distress. To begin by bluster, but afterwards to take fright of the enemy's numbers shows a supreme lack of intelligence. If the enemy's troops march up angrily and remain facing ours for a long time without either joining battle or taking themselves off again, the situation is one that demands great vigilance and circumspection. If our troops are no more in number than the enemy, that is amply sufficient. If only means that no direct attack can be made. What we can do is simply concentrate all our available strength, keep the close watch on the enemy, and obtain reinforcements. He who exercises no forethought but makes light of his opponents is sure to be captured by them. If soldiers are punished before they have grown attached to you, they will not prove submissive. And unless submissive, then will be practically useless. If the soldiers have become attached to you, punishments are not enforced, they will still be useless. Therefore, soldiers must be treated in the first instance with humility, but kept under control by the means of iron discipline. This is a certain road to victory. If in training soldiers' commands are habitually enforced, the army will be well disciplined. If not, the discipline will be bad. If a general shows confidence in his men, but always insists on his orders being disobeyed, the gain will be mutual. So that's pretty interesting. A lot of tactics here. A lot of ground movement. A lot of signs of what to look for. So one of the things that he said, is said if the soldiers are grouped up, if the enemy soldiers are grouped up, or even if your own soldiers are grouped up, talking amongst themselves, that means there's some type of dissatisfaction going on between the rank and file, right? So that's something that I would look out for in the office. If you have a couple of your uh, people uh, gathered around together, talking amongst themselves, gossiping, that means that they are unhappy with something that's going on, or there's a bunch of rumors, or there's some type of drama going on, right? So keep an eye out for that. Um, you don't want to have that type of gossip or uh, drama going on in your office, right? People are focused on that and not focused on their work, right? So keep that's something to look out for as being a leader and how can you change that? What can you do to make the satisfaction inside of your department, inside your company better, right? It was interesting about the birds because I've always heard that, that when 
birds are flying around crazy, that means that something's going on. It makes sense because he said that when birds are flocked together on the ground, that means that that area is unoccupied. So unless they're Canadian geese, right? Because Canadian geese don't care and they're all over the place. All right, so Sun Tzu, The Art of War, chapters 8 and 9. Next chapter is Terrain. We have a little bit of time. Maybe we'll get into chapter 10. All right, let's continue. Let's flip the script. Let's go into chapter 10. Sun Tzu said, We may distinguish six kinds of terrain. Entangling ground, temporizing ground, narrow passes, precipitous heights, positions, at a great distance from the enemy. Ground which can be freely traversed by both sides is called accessible. With regard to ground of this nature, be before the enemy and occupying the raised land, sunny spots, and carefully guard your line of supplies. Then you will be able to fight with advantage. Ground which can be abandoned but is hard to reoccupy is called entangling. From positions of this sort, if the enemy is unprepared, you may sally forth and defeat him. But if the enemy is prepared for your coming, you fail to defeat him. Then returning being impossible, disaster will ensure. When the position is such that neither side will gain by making the first move, it is called temporizing ground. In a position of this sort, even though the enemy should offer his an attractive bait, it will be advisable not to stir forth, but rather to retreat, thus enticing the enemy in his turn. Then, when part of his army has come out, we may deliver your attack with advantage. With regard to narrow passes, if you can occupy them first, let them be strongly garrisoned and await in the advent of the enemy. Should an army forestall you in accompanying a pass, but not go after him if the pass is fully garrisoned, but only if the weakly garrisoned. With regard to precipitous heights, if you are beforehand with an adversary, you should occupy the raised and sunny spots and there wait for him to come up. If the enemy has occupied them before you, do not follow him, but retreat, try to entice him away. If you are situated at a great distance from the enemy and the strength of the two armies are equal, it is not easy to provoke a battle and fighting will be your disadvantage. These six are the principles connected with earth. The general who has attained the responsible post must be careful to study them. Now an army is exposed to six several calamities, not arising from natural causes, but from faults for which the general is responsible. These are flight, insubordination, collapse, ruin, disorganization, and root. Other conditions being equal, if one force is hurled against another ten times its size, the result will be flight of the former. When the common soldiers are too strong and their officers too weak, the result is insubordination. All right, so let's check that again. It says that if the one force is hurried against another ten times its size, the result will be flight of the former. When the common soldiers are too strong and their officers are too weak, the result is insubordination. So 
inside your organization, if your troops consider themselves to be strong and they view their leaders as being weak, you're going to see insubordination because your troops are going to think that they are smarter or that they are better than those who are leading them. And your managers are going to have a hard time keeping those workers, those troops, those employees in line. So your leaders, your managers are going to have to be strong-willed and not be too passive, not too aggressive, but not too passive so that those who they are leading, they can show a good example and strength so that they will be able to keep that discipline inside of your organization where you don't have your lower level employees running over and disobeying and being an insubordinate to their leaders, right? When officers are too strong, the common soldiers too weak, the result is collapse. So if your managers are too strong and they're too hard on the on their employees or their lower level management, your organization is going to collapse because the workload, whatever it is, the pressure that they're putting on them is too much for them to handle and they're not going to be able to execute the daily duties, the goals that they're supposed to be doing, right? Daily tasks. So be careful of that too. You can have two stronger leaders and have your employees and your organization be too weak. Otherwise, it's not going to work. When the higher officers are angry and insubordinate and on meeting the enemy give battle on their own account from a feeling of resentment before the commander in chief can tell whether or no he is in a position to fight, the result is ruin. When a general is weak and without authority, when his orders are not clear and distinct, when there are no fixed duties assigned to officers and men, and the ranks are formed in a sovereignly haphazard manner, the result is utter disorganization. When a general unable to estimate the enemy's strength allows an inferior force to engage a larger one or hurls a weak detachment against a powerful one and neglects to place picked soldiers in the front ranks, the result will be root. These are the six ways of countering defeat, which must be carefully noted by the general who has attained responsible posts. The natural formation of a country is a soldier's best ally, but a power of estimating the adversary and controlling the forces of victory and the shrewdery calculating difficulties, dangers, and distances constitutes the test of a great general. He who knows these things and the fighting puts his knowledge into practice will win his battles. He who knows them not, not practices them, will surely be defeated. If fighting is a sure result in victory, then you must fight, even though the ruler forbid it. If fighting will not result in victory, then you must not fight even the ruler's bidding. All right, so that's where Sun Tzu said that there's some commands that the general must not follow from the sovereign, right? So if the if fighting is going to lead in victory, this is a case where Sun Tzu is saying that you must fight, even if the sovereign says not to. And if infighting is going to lead to defeat, 
You must not fight even if the sovereign says to fight. I don't know if you can get away with that these days. Yeah, that's uh, that's hard to get a... You're not going to be able to pull that off nowadays, so I would disregard that. Don't... Unless somebody's going to die or something really bad is going to happen, I wouldn't advise doing that. In general, who advances without conveying fame and retreats without fearing disgrace whose only thought is to protect his country and do good service for his sovereign is the jewel of the kingdom. Regard your soldiers as your children and they will follow you into the deepest valleys. Look upon them as your own beloved sons and they will stand by you even unto death. So it says that the general whose only thought is to protect his country and to do good for service for his sovereign is a jewel of the kingdom. All right, so put it this way. If an employee or a manager in his sole thinking as part of this organization is to do good for the company over his own benefit, so the better that he does, the better the company does, right? That's a jewel inside of your organization. That person is going to lift up your organization And it says, if you look over your soldiers as your children, then they will follow you into the deepest valleys. Look upon them as your own beloved sons, and they will stand by you even unto death. So taking care of your people, you take care of your people, your people will take care of you, right? If, however, you are indulgent and unable to make your authority felt, kind-hearted but unable to enforce your commands, an incapable maneuver of quelling disorder, then your soldiers must be likened to spoiled children and they are useless for any practical purpose. All right, so if you are looking at your people and your organization as your children and you're unable to enforce your commands, can't keep discipline, can't keep order inside of your organization, then your employees, your people in your organization are to be thought of as spoiled children. So you need to get them back into line. If we know that our own men are in a condition to attack, but are unaware that the enemy is not open to attack, we have gone only halfway towards victory. All right, so if you are sure of your capability, but you're not sure of the enemy's capabilities, then you're only halfway there. You have to know your capabilities and the status of your enemy. If we know that the enemy is open to attack, but are unaware that our own men are not in a condition to attack, we have gone only halfway toward the victory, so vice versa. If we know that the enemy is open to attack and also know that our men are in a condition to attack, we but we are unaware of the nature of the ground, makes fighting impracticable, we are still gone only halfway towards victory. Hence, the experienced soldier, once emotion is never bewildered, Once he has broken camp, he is never at a loss. Hence the saying, if you know that the enemy and know yourself, your victory will not stand in doubt. If you know heaven and know earth, you may make your victory complete. All right, so that's the end of chapter 10. 
and we will pick up the next podcast at chapter 11. If you are enjoying this podcast, please hit the like, subscribe button, and share this podcast with your friends. Send the link, pass it on, and this is Flip the Script Podcast out.